The Murder of Tutankhamen. Chapter 5, Part 2. We are now in a position to reconstruct what young Tutankhamen's life must have been like in Amarna. Born in the middle of the greatest religious revolution Egypt has ever seen, Tutankhamun started his life in a bustling, energetic family at its peak, full of the optimism and excitement of a new movement. But distant from the rest of Egypt and its traditional gods. As a child, he wouldn't have understood the ideas his father preached, but he would have sensed that his father, the king, was an important leader. Tutankhamun grew up in the royal nursery along with six princesses, his half-sisters, all but one older than he. The heir apparent, Smenkare, was probably an older brother or half-brother, more than ten years his senior, and may have already been on his own. Tutankhamun began learning to read and write around the age of four. Learning to read hieroglyphs is more difficult than one might think. It's not just picture writing. When you see an owl or a foot hieroglyph, the inscription isn't talking about birds and feet. The owl represents the sound of M and the foot the sound of B. Many hieroglyphs are phonetic, just like our alphabet. Tutankhamun learned 25 letters of the Egyptian alphabet, and then he started on the hundreds of other hieroglyphs that are ideographic, pictures of the words or idea they represent. Hours upon hours would be devoted to writing hieroglyphs correctly with a reed brush, and the student chewed on until the end splayed and was soft like a paintbrush. The scribal palette was a rectangular block of wood or stone with pits for blocks of red and black ink and a hollowed slit to hold the reed brushes. Tutankhamun's palette, later found in his tomb, was carved from ivory and inscribed with his name. When he was ready to write, he dipped his brush in a little bowl of water, touched it to the solid ink, and drew his hieroglyphs on broken bits of pottery for practice, later on papyrus. The hieroglyphs for writing show the implements Tutankhamun learned with the palette, the little bowl, and the reed brush. Tutankhamun practiced by copying texts of the wisdom of earlier generations. Traditionally, maxims that would improve the mind as well as penmanship were favorites. Let your name go forth while your mouth is silent. Report a thing observed, not heard. I suspect that as Tutankhamun grew older, he was given prayers to the Aten to copy. Life was not all study for Tutankhamun. He must have gone swimming off the banks of the Nile with his sisters and children of the courtiers, along with an entourage of royal guards and nurses to watch for crocodiles. A favorite love poem from Tutankhamun's time laments, My love is on one bank of the river and I on the other, and there's a crocodile on the sandbank. Tutankhamun learned to hunt ducks with a small bow, especially made for a boy's short arms, and probably delighted in hiding in the reeds and waiting for his target, often assisted by one of his sisters. It was a sport that he enjoyed all his life. The young prince had few cares. His older brother was going to be king, so Tutankhamun did not bear the responsibility or need the training to officiate at state and religious functions. When he was about eight years old, Tutankhamun probably learned to drive a chariot, 
An experienced charioteer must have accompanied him to control its two prancing steeds until Tutankhamun was strong enough to handle the reins alone. His teacher would have made the young prince practice for weeks to master the fine points of driving over rough and sandy terrain. Tutankhamun's chariot training was not to prepare him for battle someday. His father had no interest in military matters. It was so he could present a viral figure driving along the royal road in a family procession. There were some things Tutankhamun missed out on. His father had pledged never to leave the city, so it is unlikely that Tutankhamun was permitted to a trip to the Delta, 250 miles north of Amarna, where the best duck and bird hunting was found in papyrus thickets so dense that two people 10 feet apart couldn't see each other. There, fowlers caught 20 birds in their nets at one time. Tutankhamun would have heard conversations in the palace about such fabulous hunts, but he would not participate. He must have also heard the stories about Thebes, the grand city with temples even larger than those at Amarna, where his grandfather had ruled and his father had grown up. But he couldn't visit there either. That was where the priests of Amun lived, and only recently his father had sent servants to carve out the name of Amun from all the temples, even from the top of Queen Hatshepsut's obelisk although it was so high that the unenthusiastic workmen left it alone, figuring that no one would see it anyway. By the time Tutankhamun was eight or nine, he would have sensed trouble in his father's court. The foreign office was receiving letters from distant lands, far beyond the borders of Egypt, on little clay tablets, hard as rocks. The tablets, ranging in size from two and a half to three and a half inches wide, and two and a half inches to nine inches long were covered with small wedge-shaped writing, quite different from the hieroglyphs he had learned to write. They were written in Akkadian, the international language of the day. Many of the letters had been sent to Egypt from the kings of other countries, Byblos, Lebanon, Ugarit, Syria, Assyria, Iraq, and Hadi, Turkey. Others were sent by vassals requesting favors from the pharaoh. Many expressed puzzlement. Why does the king not answer their requests? For example, a succession of letters from a loyal prince of Byblos named Rib Abi, Akhenaten's man in Lebanon, was filled with desperate pleas. He wrote no fewer than 64 letters. Rib Adi is known from earlier letters to Akhenaten's father during better times that reveal a man of good business sense, able to conduct matters of state with dignity and pride. During Akhenaten's reign, Rib Adi's position in Byblos had weakened. The faithful prince wrote repeatedly to Akhenaten, telling of his plight, pleading with Pharaoh to send troops. When the troops were not sent, he wrote to the general Amenapa. When even this pitiful plea went unanswered, Ribadi wrote to Akhenaten again. The plea remained unanswered. Ribadi was nearly killed. A stranger stood with dagger drawn against me, but I killed him. 
I cannot go out the gate, and I have written to the palace, but thou hast not sent an answer. I have been wounded nine times and have feared so for my life. One can only wonder what end befell poor Rib Adi. Tutankhamun's father, an idealist and religious visionary, lacked all interest in dealing with the complex business of government and governing a major country. And so Tutankhamun passed his childhood in privilege, circumstances, and everything at his disposal a young boy could wish for, except that he was confined to the boundaries of just one city. Since little was expected of him as long as Smankare, his older brother, sat with his father on the throne, his life was otherwise carefree, perhaps dimly clouded by a sense that all was not right in Egypt. Then, one day, Smankare died. On that day, Tutankhamun's life took a very serious turn. He would be king one day. Within two years, his father, the pharaoh, died as well. This death left the affairs of Egypt in disarray. Predeceased by his wives and by only his adult son, Akhenaten's death extinguished the last royal adult. There must have been great confusion about what should be done. Where to begin picking up the pieces? Who should take control? Akasin Pa'aten and her half-brother Tutankhaten were also surviving royals, but they were only children. Yet the question of who would succeed Akhenaten on the throne of Egypt was settled almost by default. The ten-year-old Tutankhamun was simply the only male of the royal line and Akasapa'aten was the only royal female. Tutankhamun alone could be pharaoh, although his half-royal blood would have to be supplemented by the full royal blood of his sister. Akasapa'aten and Tutankhamun married. Tutankhamun's skinny ten-year-old frame was placed upon the very large throne of the pharaoh of Egypt. With a power vacuum created by Akhenaten's death and the fate of Egypt at stake, there must have been furious jockeying for position among the officials of the Amarna court. A pair of ten-year-olds could not take charge, whatever their titles. Each member of the inner circle must have had a strong and varied reaction to what should be done now that their eccentric leader was gone. Several men must have had thought he was the right man to successfully steer the nation through this precarious time. The ones with the most to lose must have been distraught when they found their position suddenly at risk. Mary Ra, the high priest of the Aten, owed his elevated position, great wealth, and high social status to the dreamer he followed to Amarna. Examination of his tomb, one of the grandest in the necropolis, fleshes out the picture. Mary Ra held the prestigious title, Fan Bearer on the Right Hand of the King but also listed High Priest of the Aten, Royal Chancellor, Hereditary Prince, and One Known to the King, as evidence of his crucial role in the management of the nation. His tomb walls displayed Akhenaten installing Mary Ra as High Priest of the Aten and lavishing collars and necklaces of gold upon him. Mary Ra was a key player in the new religion and close to Akhenaten. He was almost certainly alive when Akhenaten died in the 17th year of his reign, so he would be there to make decisions for the boy king and to push him to continue the support and practice of the new religion. Another nobleman, 
Panhesi, would have sound second in this council. He was the second priest of the Lord of the Two Lands, superintendent of the granary of the Aten, superintendent of the oxen of the Aten, northern chancellor of the king, and intimate of the king. Although second to Mary Ra in religious matters, Penhesi administered and controlled the wealth associated with the Aten and the priesthood. He too was shown on his, his tomb walls laden with gold necklaces, while servants carried the collars, bracelets, and other ornaments given to him by the king. Also glued to the king's side were the grand courtier I, a contemporary of Tutankhamun's grandfather, Amenhotep III. I may have served the royal family through two generations already. He was perhaps the oldest member of the previous regime to follow the odd-looking Akhenaten on his quest for enlightenment and seemed positioned above all other officials in the court. I's declarations and some of his actions show him protective of the pharaoh and his family. Other actions, however, suggest scheming ambition, as we will see. At this stage in our investigation, the only thing we can say with certainty is that I was one of the few people surrounding the new pharaoh who had direct knowledge of a different regime than Akhenaten's. I was the highest place official in the government. His tomb, the largest and most elaborate of all the nobles, displayed his titles, fan bearer of the right hand of the king, overseer of all the horses of his majesty, the royal scribe, and most important of all, the God's Father. The God's Father was a title given only to those very close to the Pharaoh, the living God, and could even indicate a royal tutor who stands in for the Father. Overseer of all the horses of his majesty suggests a military connection, although in Akhenaten's time it may have been honorary because the military was neglected. I's wife, T also held a high position in the Amarna court, nurse to Nefertiti. Politically, they were the best-connected couple at Amarna. T had easy access to the queen, so knew intimate details about palace life. Her husband, I, had the pharaoh's ear. Together, they formed the eyes and ears of the palace. Their prestige at court is confirmed on the walls of I's tomb, where Tutankhamun is shown awarding gold collars to both I and T in recognition of their services, making T the only woman placed in the ranks of people of gold, suggesting that she was a power in her own right. An inscription on I's tomb walls boasts, I was one favored by the Lord of all lands, great in favor from year to year, because of the exceeding greatness of my excellence in his opinion. He doubled for me my favors like the number of sand, I was the first of the officials at the head of the people. My name has penetrated into the palace because of my usefulness to the king, because of my hearing his teaching. These do not sound like the words of a selfless family retainer. They convey a self-aggregizing view of someone who relishes all the trappings of power earned because of his outstanding abilities. Twice on the walls of his tomb, I shows himself and his wife receiving honors and gold from the pharaoh. In one scene, a man seated on a stool asks a young boy leaving the ceremony, For whom do they rejoice, boy? The boy replies, They rejoice for I, the god's father, together with T. They have been made people of gold. 
but work seems to have ceased on Ai's tomb long before Akhenaten died, which is peculiar, even ominous. A number of signs tell us so. There are several ways to tell when the work stopped on a tomb. Sometimes an inscription gives the date of its carving, for example, year 12 of Akhenaten. Another clue is to note the way the Aten's name is written. Before year 9, his name was Ra Horketi lives, rejoicing in the horizon, and his name Shu, which is Aten. After year 9 of Akhenaten's reign, the Aten's name was changed to Ra, the father who was returned to Aten. Still another way of dating a tomb is by the number of Akhenaten's daughters shown. The fourth princess appears around year 9, and the fifth around year 11. The walls of Ai's tomb are inscribed with only the earlier form of the Aten's name, and just three princesses are shown in the scene of the royal family. It seemed the work stopped on Ai's tomb around year 8 of Akhenaten's 17-year rule. Why? The answer may be that by the year 8 of the new order, Ai, from his privileged position as an insider, saw that things were not going well at Amarna. He may have realized that Camelot was doomed. This is only speculation. What seems clear is that I had no intention of staying long enough in in Amarna to be buried. The question is, what plans did I have for his future? Someone who had to rule the country in Tutankhamun's place, at least until the child approached adulthood. Mary Ra, Penhesi, and I are the three officials most likely to have been imposed their, to try to impose their wills on the immature king. Probably all three of them advised him, but there were crucial issues that divided them. Who had the final say? Who was the real power behind the throne? Mary Ra, the high priest of the Aten, had the most to lose if the young king abandoned the Aten. Panhesi's wealth and position were also tied to the Aten's estates. He, too, would have advised Tutankhamun to continue his father's religion. Both would have urged, for their own sake, if not the country's, that Amarna remained the religious and civil capital. But of these three possible regions, I held the highest rank, the only one titled God's Father. I was not committed to either the new capital or the new religion. Almost immediately, the real ruler of Egypt revealed himself. The decision was made to return to Thebes and resurrect the old religion. Only I, of these three Amarna leaders, makes a transition to the new regime. Mary Ra and Penhesi disappear from history. We can only imagine what happened to them. Although no inscription explicitly states that I became the Grand Vizier of Egypt, the equivalent of Prime Minister, most Egyptologists agree that he assumed the role. Now that he had control, I faced powerful interest blocks, such as the army and priesthood, grumbling loudly about the state of the country. I's power consisted of two very young royal children. His first step was to announce the restoration of the old regime by holding the coronation of the new pharaoh in Thebes, the traditional religious capital of Egypt, as soon as he could. I would have Tutan... Katen and Anxenpa'aten changed their names to show their association with the old god Amun, 
becoming Tutankhamun and Aksunamun. The Amun part of their names is an English transliteration of Amun. Both acts would earn the support of the priests. The army would watch to see what lay ahead for them, but could only take heart in the fact that the new pharaoh had at least ended the isolation in Amarna. Sailing to Thebes for the coronation would have been the first time Tutankhamun and Aksun and Amun ever traveled outside Amarna, distracting them from the death of their father and the turmoil of Amarna. As the boat sailed up the Nile, they saw villagers lining the banks of the river, hoping to catch a glimpse of the new king and queen. When they landed at Thebes, these children, raised in an isolated city with only one god, must have been overwhelmed by the bustling city, its magnitude of temples and all sorts of different gods. They were orphans, separated from the only home they had known, about to denounce their religion. It must have all been quite terrifying. I and his wife T would have identified the sites, but it would have been a dozen years since they had been to Thebes. No longer did the city glow with self-importance, beckoning with prosperity. It had become a darker, more dangerous place. Here the children would have been confronted with suspicious, even hostile looks, frightening change from the pure, adoring faces of simple farmers along the way. Tutankhamun and his bride must have clung to each other, perhaps holding hands, wondering what lay ahead for them in this frightening large world. We know from portraits and inscriptions that a genuine love developed between them, perhaps nurtured by such hatred and difficult experience. They were installed in the once grand palace of their grandfather, Amenhotep III. A king had not been in residence for almost two decades, so workmen and painters must have frantically prepared for the royal arrival. Built of mud brick, covered with plaster, beautifully painted with elaborate motifs, this palace was a sprawling affair, with gardens and lakes and spacious quarters for pharaoh's queen, wives, concubines, and children. Tutankhamun's father had grown up here as Amenhotep IV. I may have been a visitor. No doubt old retainers would tell Tutankhamun and Akas and Amun stories about their grandmother, Queen Tai, and her fabulous pleasure lake about their and about their grandfather, Amenhotep III, who had built as no one before him. They would tell them about the tribute from foreign lands paraded before the palace, exotic things like ostriches and giraffes, which the children had never seen. Compared to this busy palace in the center of a larger world, Amarna was an isolated ivory tower. Tutankhamun and Ankhas and Amun would have to absorb a great deal and quickly in order to survive. Then came the coronation. Tutankhamun stood before the gateway to Karnak Temple, the largest building he had ever seen. Looking onto a courtyard filled with thousands of priests who served the god his father had banished. For the crowd of Thebans thronging outside, this was their first glimpse of the new king, who they prayed would return Egypt to the good old days. Tutankhamun was purified with ritual waters poured from four gold vases. Now he could enter the house of the gods. 
The procession moved slowly past the obelisk of Tutankhamun's ancestors, Tuthmosis I and Hatshepsut, past the shrine erected by Tuthmosis III, stopping at various places for rituals and prayers. He was presented with the crowns of kingship, the tall white crown representing Upper Egypt, then the red crown of Lower Egypt, successfully placed on his head. He became the lord of the two lands, king of Upper and Lower Egypt. Then the blue Kefpresh crown, sometimes called the war crown, was conferred, and he became the commander of the army. The crowns of Egypt were revered as possessors of magical properties bestowed invincibility on those who wore them. Probably only one of each type existed at any time, passed from pharaoh to pharaoh on the day of his coronation. No such crown has ever been found in excavation. These were the only royal objects the kings of Egypt were not allowed to take to their graves. As the procession moved along the passageways between the temples, Tutankhamun neared his child-sized throne covered in gold. There, he was presented with the royal symbols of his authority, the crook and flail. Pharaoh was both the shepherd of his flock and its dominating master. Two sets of crook and flail were found in Tutankhamun's tomb. One child-sized set used at Tutankhamun's coronation. The other was that of a full-sized pharaoh. The small set bore the name of the Aten, a last reminder of the days he was about to leave behind. As Tutankhamun sat for the first time upon the throne, the high priest of Amun recited his five royal names. Number one, the Horus name, associated with the king, associated the king with Horus, the falcon god. Horus, strong bull, whose images are born. Number two, the two ladies name, associating the pharaoh with the cobra goddess and the vulture goddess, whose laws are good, who pacifies all the gods. Number three, the golden Horus name, a second association with Horus, who brings together divine order, who pleases the gods. Number four, the prenomen, the first of the king's two names written in a cartouche, the oval signifying royalty, preceded by the hieroglyph of a bee and a sedge plant. Symbols of Upper and Lower Egypt. Ra manifests himself as Lord, Lord of Ra's being. Neb Kapiru Ra. And number five, the Nomen, the second name in that cartouche, preceded by hieroglyphs for Son of Ra, asserting the king's descent from the sun god Ra. Tut Ankh Aten, living image of the Aten. At this stage, his name had not yet been changed. After the five royal names had been bestowed on Tutankhamun, he was officially the pharaoh of Egypt. The procession retraced its steps through the temple back to the entrance pylon. The ceremony was over. On his way to the palace for his own celebration, with more lavish entertainment, the new king passed crowds feasting and rejoicing in the streets. Thanks to liberally distributed gifts of bread and beer. There were, dis- they were dancers with weights in their long hair, so it swayed as they moved. Musicians, hand clappers, and singers, 
for all the enjoyment of the new king. One can imagine the excitement that Tutankhamun and Ankhus and Amun felt as they talked about the coronation of the fantastic gods and rituals. They must have been amazed to see the temple walls with images of strange gods who had human bodies and animal heads, lionesses, falcons, and rams. Why did their pharaoh shown on the walls offer, offer incense and beer to them? Their father would never have done that. As grand as Thebes was, they must have still wistfully thought about more familiar, quieter surroundings of Amarna. Thebes was too big and complicated. After a short time, the king and queen did, indeed, return to Amarna, but stayed only a year or so. With their father dead, the city had lost its soul. The decision had been made not to reconcile two estranged religious camps. One or the other must be abandoned if Egypt was to be unified. By now the children had grieved long enough, had learned that Amarna was not the world. The royal couple changed their names to reflect the return to Amun, the god of Thebes, becoming Tutankhamun and Ankhus and Amun. Within two years, the royal court and government all moved to Thebes. The old religion and traditions of the past were fully reinstated. With no proper support or reason for existence, Akhenaten's holy city was virtually abandoned and his god declined into obscurity. But there was a few who would re- but there were a few who could return to Thebes. Priests of the Aten may have had to remain in Amarna unless they converted. Akhenaten's courtiers would face hostility in any other city for their participation in Akhenaten's hated policies. None of their names are found in any Theban records. Of Akhenaten's high officials, only I seem to be able to transcend the heresy and resume his career. He was guiding the policies of Tutankhamun in the right direction. Some would have viewed him with suspicion, but the priesthood enthusiastically greeted the restoration of Amun and the temples. Any criticism of I would have waned as skeptics observed a trend back to the old tradition. Under I's guidance, Tutankhamun seemed to be doing everything right. It was a delicate balance, but I was a master of the high wire. He had earned the confidence of the young boss and the admiration of his priests. I must have truly been proud of his excellent work. The Amarna dream had turned rancid. Ordinary cities, citizens abandoned Amarna, moving in mass to Thebes, creating an overnight ghost town, walked through only by priests of a religion that no one wanted, and courtiers without a court. One indication of how the Amarnans felt about their time in the city they abandoned is shown by what they left behind. In 1912, the German expedition to Amarna, led by Ludwig Barschop, made a dramatic discovery while clearing debris from the house and studio of a master sculptor named Tuthmosis. When they entered a locked storeroom in the sculptor's house, the excavators found exquisite busts and heads of statues that Tuthmosis had not completed when the exodus from the city began. Among these pieces was the famous bust of Nefertiti. That such a work of art should be left behind can only mean that people did not want to remember the era they had helped create. 
Akhenaten was branded a heretic. Less than 15 years after his death, gangs of workmen were sent to Amarna to dismantle the temples and reuse their blocks in building projects elsewhere. Amarna was razed to the ground. What had once been an oasis of beauty on a barren landscape became a lost city in a desert. Egypt's brief encounter with the Aten was over. Monotheism would not return to the Nile Valley for 1,500 years. Egypt had shown it would not tolerate any changes in its religion or the role of its pharaoh, not for another 1,000 years, and not until it had lost its special place of dominance in the world. The Amarna heresy was a unique departure from Egypt's tradition-bound history what physicists today call a singularity, an unparalleled event. The seeds of social revolution often take root in poverty and discontent. This movement sprang from prosperity. Most revolutions that shake political foundations are fraught with violence. Tutankhamun's was peaceful. His dream was realized for a while because the person with vision carried the awesome power of a pharaoh, almost enough to pull it off. But he died too soon, ending what could have been a turning point in the history of the world. Today we are so comfortable with monotheism that it's difficult to imagine just how revolutionary the idea was for the inhabitants of the Nile Valley. For 2,000 years, Egyptians had worshipped numerous gods, their deities rising and falling in importance and evolving into aspects of each other, but they were never discarded. Often foreign gods, seen as aspect of Egyptian gods, were welcome into the pantheon. When you already have a number of gods, a few more are no problem. Rather, why take the chance by excluding one who may be powerful? There was no reason to choose only one deity when many gods suited them so well. Monotheism forced people into a mode of thinking that seemed, if not unnatural, at least unreasonable. Even Akhenaten didn't comprehend the great danger of monotheism, that it is decisive. If there is only one God, then those who don't accept that God are wrong. Monotheism draws a line between us and them, divides people and nations into believers and non-believers. No war was ever fought between polytheistic countries over whose God was the true one. Compare this with the number of wars fought on behalf of the Jewish, Christian, and Islamic religions. Akhenaten had not realized that. If a modern parallel would help us understand the Amarna Revolution, consider the changes now taking place in Germany. Two halves of the nation had long been ideologically divided. One was led by the leader whose vision was out of touch with reality, who could support his ideal only through intolerance, in the end, he lost. The interesting part of the parallel is to observe what happened to his former followers and to all he had created after the movement failed. Today, almost no one in East Germany acknowledges support for the former regime. They rushed to help pull down old statues and buildings they themselves had erected. In ancient Egypt, too, there was a general denial of ever having been a part of Akhenaten's movement. Even names were changed to make assimilation possible. I can't imagine a citizen of Amarna named Aten-en-Heb, the Aten is in festival, 
returning to Thebes with his name intact. This is why there are so many unanswered questions about what happened at Amarna, as there are about the inner workings of communism in Germany. Just as most communists did not keep souvenirs of their membership, the inhabitants of Amarna did not preserve artifacts of the revolution. The bus of Nefertiti was left behind because no one wanted it. The man who caused all caused it all assuredly did not rest peacefully deep in the confines of his Amarna tomb. Soon after the city was abandoned, all its tombs were robbed for treasures they contained. The bodies of Nefertiti, Kia, and the five princesses who died at Amarna have never been found. Like Akhenaten's, they were probably torn to shreds. <laughs>